We saw the futility of it. The Lord appointed a storm, a mighty tempest. The sailors got scared. They threw their livelihood overboard. They recognized that there was a spiritual connotation to this storm. Like lots were cast and they fell on Jonah. Eventually, Jonah was thrown overboard and the seas became calm. The sailors repented and worshipped the Lord. And what happened to Jonah? We all know the story well, right? Jonah's in the water going down, down, down. It, it, the, uh, chapter 2 describes seaweed wrapped around his head and all these things. And the Lord appointed a great fish and the great fish swallowed Jonah. And we've seen that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as he was in the belly of the fish, the Lord was working on his heart, I believe. At the end of chapter 2, he has this great prayer. He has five, five keys uh, that in, in this prayer. He remembered the Lord his God, firstly. And secondly, he confessed his sin before the Lord. The sin of idolatry, casting down our idols. He gave thanks to the Lord. He committed to follow through the vows that he had given to the Lord. And he acknowledged that his salvation was found in the Lord, not in himself. So that's where we were. We were in chapter 2. Jonah humbled himself and he prayed before the Lord. And the Lord caused a whole bunch of indigestion in that fish and he puked him up on the beach. And now here we are at chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. You know, I love this principle of our God. Our God is a God of second chances. You know, Jonah heard a clear, clear message from the Lord, a clear calling, no ambiguity in it at all. It was absolute, and he turned and ran, and God still gave him a second chance. Look at the characters we see in Scripture. Look at Peter. I'll go to, the, I'll go to death with you. A couple days later, I don't know that man. What did the Lord do with Peter? Start reading the book of Acts. And we see Peter before the council with John, ministering powerfully. God used him still, gave him second chances. We look at Abraham in the Old Testament we all know that what Abraham was, you know, he had his failings. You know, he was the guy who lied about his wife, said, oh, she's my sister, because he was worried that he was going to get killed, save his, save his hide. You know, he's the father of the Hebrew nation. The Lord gave him a second chance. What about David? Man, we know David well, eh? Goes in the adulterer, the murderer, uh, he had his fair share of blumberings, going before the uh, other kings looking like a madman drooling from his beard. And what did the Lord do with David? He gave him second chances. We know that David is known as a man after God's own heart, not because he didn't fail, but he repented and God gave him a second chance. I love the message of our God, a God of second chances. You know, God gives us a second chance, but the message doesn't necessarily change. In this story, the story of Jonah, we get into chapter 3, and we have the same commissioning that he got in chapter 1. It's the same message. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out the against it the message that I tell you. It's the call of God is the same. God hasn't taken the call off. But it's the same message reiterated. 
And you know, it's the Lord's message. I love that. It's the Lord's message, not my message, not our message. It's the Lord's message. It's a message of action. It's a message of go and do. Rather than run, what does Jonah do this time? I think Jonah recognized something that I think we probably all would. The first time I thought, ah, I'm going to run. And what did Jonah, uh, you know, if I'm Jonah, I'm going to run. I'm going to jump on a boat. Oh, hang on. I ended up in the belly of a fish for three days. I think Jonah learned the, the futility of running from the Lord. So when he's, uh, when he's uh, recommissioned the second time, he does go. He does go. You know, this was an uncomfortable message for the prophet. If you guys remember when we were in chapter 1 and 2, we talked a little bit about the Syrian people of Nineveh versus the surrounding people. The Assyrians were brutal conquerors. They were some of the, um, they were some of the fiercest, nastiest nations that have lived on this earth. Uh, some of the stories I've read of what they've done, I probably wouldn't repeat here because there might be some young ears here. These guys were absolutely brutal. They were the enemies of the Hebrew people. This would have been going out and preaching, going out and sharing good news with people that you hate, absolutely hate. And he was called to do it. It was uncomfortable for the message, uh, for the prophet. You know, it's not always comfortable for us to speak the word of God. I know... uh, times in my life where I've had the opportunity to share my faith, it's not always comfortable when I start. It's actually scary. When the Lord poses an opportunity to share my faith, I tend to be shaking in my boots in fear. I'm uncomfortable. Now one truth I will say about sharing my faith is that the Lord takes the fear and turns it into excitement when I start speaking, the times I spoke. So it's an uncomfortable message for the prophet. It's the same message for the prophet, and it's the Lord's message. It's a second chance. So now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey. Nineveh is, a, or was, the ruins even are, are they're, mat, they're immense. Um, history tells us that this was a walled city, uh, the foundations and the wall together uh, would have been about 50 feet high, 50 feet wide. They say three chariots could have run abreast on the walls. There was uh, towers every 60 feet. There was 1,700 acres of walled city. This was no small city. There may have been as many as up to 600,000 people living in Nineveh at its peak. So it's a huge city, three days' journey. Jonah began to go into the city. He's, he's in the city about a day, and he calls out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He travels and he starts to preach. I wonder what Jonah looked like. We have to remember, he's just very, very recently. I don't know how long it took him to get from the beach to Nineveh, but he did spend three days in digestive juices wrapped with seaweed around his head and kelp and whatever all those good things that this fish ate. Uh, I can only imagine what he looked like. I can only imagine that he would have been uh, very whitewashed. Maybe his hair was bleach bright white. Uh, Maybe there was no hair left. Maybe his skin was nearly falling off and nasty. I don't know, but 
I might be wrong, but I just have this image of this really, really freaky-looking guy walking in. You know, I, I think if I was called to go today to a city of, you know, there's various interpretations of the size of Nineveh at the time. Um, at the end of chapter 4, it tells us there was 120,000 people who did not know their left hand from their right, and that can be interpreted as youngsters. So if there was 120,000 youngsters, this could have been a city of half a million. I don't know. I know that probably if I was told, you've got to go to, let's say, a city the size of, I don't know, what, Abbotsford's 120, 130,000 people, and you've got to preach and get the message out in short term, I would probably develop a great big machine and mechanism and I'd probably try to surround me with self, a whole bunch of people, and let's create a plan. We're going to do this. And what did Jonah do? He came in as this maybe freaky-looking guy, but God worked incredibly that one man got a message to, to a city. One man. Something only God can do. What kind of machine would I create? Or would I just walk in the simplicity of the calling to go and speak the message of God? I'm reminded that we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of ambassador, what do you think of? I mean, we can think of Gordon Campbell, (laughs) our ambassador to England. Whether you like him or hate him, that's irrelevant. He's an ambassador. The man is sent. He's commissioned. Um, he He is not there to speak his personal feelings. He is there to speak the message that's been given to him by the people who sent him. In this case, the government of Canada has sent this guy over to be an ambassador. We are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to share his message, his gospel. And To me, I find great comfort and hope in that because it's not me. It's God. It's his work. You know, we don't have to worry about what to say always. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John, they stand before the council and the high priest and they start to speak and the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, gave them the words to speak. God gives us the words when we need them. Now we look at the message of Jonah. I, I, I find this fascinating. We look at the message of Jonah. Yet 40 days and you'll be overthrown. How many of us would respond to a message? Some really weird guy comes into town and says, 40 days and Gibson's is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. I don't know how we'd respond. I don't know if we'd respond how the Ninevites did. I, honestly, in my hardness of heart that I tend to normally have, I'd probably shrug them off and say, what, another, another whack job. But God had different plans in store. So Jonah came in, and somehow the Lord allowed his message to get through the whole city. Forty days, there'll be destruction. Forty days, there'll be destruction. You know, there's a great... Yeah, it's it's a message of wrath, right? It's just a message, you're going to get nuked, right? You know, the same word that's used here in the Hebrew for the word over... You know, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown, or 40 days... um, yeah, 40 days you'll be overthrown is the same word that's used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The idea of the destruction that was to coming on Nineveh would have been like in Genesis 19, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. 
And the next day Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked towards Sodom, towards the valley. And he looked on, and behold, all he saw was smoke. And the land looked like a smoke of a furnace. That's the destruction that Jonah was preaching. Wrath. But there's grace even in that message. Forty days. It's a short message. It's a blunt message. But it says in 40 days, God gave the people of Nineveh time to repent. I think it's a great principle to remember about our God. Our God has given us time as long as we have breath in our lungs to repent. In this time, he sent warning. 40 days. 40 days. There's time to repent. The old preacher, Alexander McLaren, who was preaching around the turn of the 19th, or from the late 1800s, early 1900s, he simply says it like this. God's nature of grace gives warning. God's nature of grace gives warning. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the richest of them to the greatest of them. I imagine Jonah was upset. I imagine he was grouchy because he didn't like these guys still, even though he was giving the message begrudgingly. And the people of the Lord believed. And the word even reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and from his fierce, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I find it interesting that people turn, but the, what I really find interesting is we get into this, the word of the Lord reached the king. What did the king do? You know, somehow Jonah's preaching, Jonah's influence in Nineveh, he either had the direct ear of the king or his clear message got to the king's chambers. Either way, it doesn't matter, but his message got throughout the city. It got to the powers and authorities. I love how the king responds. What does he do? It says he took off his robe. Or first he got off his throne and then he took off his robe. If you were a king, if I were a king, we would have a throne and garments that identify us, that are, um, uh, their, their right is given, honor is given. It's a place of honor. It's given to the throne, the person on the throne, the man wearing the garments, the man or woman wearing the garments. And the first step that he did in humbling before the Lord is he got off that throne, off the pedestal, and he stepped down. And then he took off his robes of privilege. And in an act of turning, he put on sackcloth. I don't know what their sackcloth looked like back then, but I was sitting in the daily roast, no, um, black bean yesterday, and their curtains are made out of these old burlap sacks. It's rough, it's nasty. 
It's not nice clothing. The king went from silk and velvet to 20-grit sandpaper. And then to top it off, he poured ashes over his head. Can you imagine how uncomfortable he would be? He comes down from his throne, his pedestal, and humbles himself before God. And then he gets together with his noble men, the knights of the round table, and he discusses the situation before them, the reality that they are being confronted with. I imagine that this king and his men were aware that Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. I also imagine that they knew some of the stories of old. I imagine they knew some of the stories of the Red Sea, Israel's, uh, Israel passing through, Egypt's army all drowning. I'm sure they heard the stories of the battles won through the desert time, the story of God's victory at Jericho. I think it instilled some fear. They responded. They responded to a message of fear and wrath. They responded on a what if. They turned on a what if. They turned on a who knows. They went on on a limb. Do you guys remember the story of the three lepers that were outside the city gates of Samaria? Samaria was under siege by the Syrian army. There was no food. These lepers are standing outside the door of the gates and they're hungry and they finally get to the point, you know what? We're either going to die of hunger standing here because they're not going to let us in the city because we're lepers and they don't have food anyhow. Or we can go and see if the Syrian army, maybe they won't kill us and they'll feed us. But what happened? They headed out towards the Syrian army and the God created, caused the noise of these three guys to scare away the entire Syrian army. They went on a what if, on a maybe, what have we got to lose? They went and they went out on a limb. And God provided food for them, in fact, food for the city. Here we see a partial message has been delivered to the Ninevite people, to the king, to the people, and they responded. A partial message. They responded with repentance. We know that repenting is turning from our ways. Excuse me. Turning from our ways, turning from our sin, and turning to the Lord. When these guys put on sackcloth and ashes and fasted, it was the act of mourning. That's how people mourned back then. It was mourning over their sin, over their evil. On a, on a what if, on a who knows God might relent. They had only a partial message. You know, today we have the whole message. That's the beauty of this. You know, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, we see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The guys at Nineveh, they had this, you know, if you... If you you can kind of break the gospel into five or six distinct kind of sections if you organize it in your mind. They had like the first one and a half. They had a tenth or a quarter of the whole story. They had a lesser message from a lesser prophet. We today have the full message from the perfect prophet, Jesus Christ. They repented on a who knows. You know, today we have that whole message. You know, this the message that was given to the Ninevites applies today. 
We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about wrath. We don't like to talk about judgment in our culture. But the reality is, is that the word tells us, Romans 3.23, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 23, tells us that the wages of sin is death. You know, the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this, Have we not all sinned? If our iniquities could now be revealed, and if on every man's brow were written his sin, which of you would not put his hand to his forehead to hide his iniquities from his fellows? I read it written that simply and thought, oof. If you guys could see my sin, I wouldn't be standing here. Believe me. We've all sinned and fallen short. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. The wrath and judgment, that's what Nineveh heard. It still applies today. But you know what? They only got the partial message. Today we have the whole message. It's not who knows if God will relent. It's we know God will relent if we turn to him. You know, Romans uh, 6.23 doesn't just say that the wages of sin are death. The statement finishes, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One might say, how can that gift be given when we've all sinned? When the wages are death. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 reminds us and it tells us that Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. He died for sins. And then, and then God's made the ground level. There's no pedestals. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. It's not my goodness. It's not my morality. It's only because of Jesus' work on the cross. We've got to remember that to have a... We're coming into Christmas time. We're seeing gifts, right? Lots of gifts. What good is a gift if it stays in the box with the wrapping paper on it? For a gift to be utilized, it needs to be received and opened and unwrapped. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who receive him, to all who believe on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified in your mouth that you confess and are saved. You know, a lot of us here believe, a lot of us here have confessed with our mouth. You know, and there's a great promise when we, ha- when we believe and have confessed with our mouth. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus' own words. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And this life in his, in his, uh, and has passed over. Sorry, I got my, reading my two verses at the same time, mixing them up. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed into the death from life. And 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know that you have eternal life. You know, in Hebrews, we have assurance. In Hebrews 9.27, we saw that we're destined to die once and we're going to have judgment. This is just like Romans 6.23. It's the first section of the statement. The paragraph isn't finished. The thought, the statement, the truth, the doctrine isn't completely finished in Romans 27. It finishes that thought in 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time not to deal with the sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. God is our Savior. We have the complete message of the gospel, God's complete plan, not just the wrath. We, have, we know that, yeah, there's wrath, but there is grace and mercy at the foot of the cross. It's not a plan based on my faithfulness. It's plan based on God's faithfulness. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have not asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, and it's as simple as confessing our sins before the Lord, coming before him saying, I am a sinner, I repent. Come and change me, I believe in you. John 1.12 tells us, yet to all who received him, to all who called on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. When we call on his name, we give him that right, eternal hope. then truly, truly, I say to you, applies to us. You know, for those of us who know Jesus, you might be saying, well, yeah, I know this. But you know, we all need to be reminded of the simplicity of the gospel. I know in my life, when I meditate and think about the simplicity of the gospel, when I think about the full package that I've been saved from that wrath by God's mercy, it should draw me into a place of repentance. Because, man, I slip and fall. But we saw at the beginning that God's got a second chance. He wants to extend his grace and mercy. And also, remind, I'm reminded that we're called to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's your spiritual act of worship. In light of the gospel, in light of the complete message, the message of hope and joy, I'm reminded that I'm not to be religious, but I'm to, I'm to be ready to share. Colossians 4, chapter 2, um, Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6, tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving, at the same time, pray for us also that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account for which I am prison, that I may make it clear this is how I ought to speak, but walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's my prayer in my life that I would learn to speak with grace and compassion that I might speak salt and light. That in light of the gospel, in light of the full message, in light that I've been saved from wrath, 
by God's grace, his free gift, that I would be brought to action. Jonah's message was a message of action. Go and do, go and speak. It was a simple message of speak. It wasn't build programs, build this and that. It was speak. Remember what the psalmist tells us? The psalmist tells us that God wants a humble and contrite heart, a heart full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for Jesus' work on the cross every day should bring me to my knees in thanksgiving and repentance. I confess that I don't every day, not how I ought to. This is for me, I tell you people, it's for me to speak, to be prepared to give an answer for the hope I have, to ask the Lord for opportunity, to ask the Lord to humble my heart, to remind me of the places where I ought to be thankful and I'm not. get to the last verse of Jonah chapter 3 and we see the grace and mercy of our God we see in that the word was preached the 40 days grace was given we see in that the people turned from their evil they repented they took the action of sackcloth and mourning And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, that intentional turning, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You know, Jesus was in heaven. He had a robe. He had a throne. We're coming into Christmas time. For my sin and for your sin, Jesus humbled himself. He came off that throne of privilege and authority. He took off the robe that identified him. And he was born a baby in a manger to die for our sins. We're coming into Christmas season. We see that God is merciful. We see that God sent Jesus Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about the gospel. Christmas is about the full message that we have been given. My challenge for myself is to keep Christ the center of Christmas this Christmas. The challenge for myself this Christmas is to speak the gospel when I have the opportunities to ask the Lord for opportunities to share the whole message. That's my challenge to myself, I think to all of us. When we're with our family, when we're with our friends, when we're exchanging presents and gifts, let's remember that it's, the gifts are, are, they really are, to, it's not about the stuff, it's to serve to remind us of the gift that God sent. Jesus taking his robe off, coming off his throne, coming and dying on the cross for you and I. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you. I thank you for the gospel, Lord. I thank you that uh, 
we can have hope, Lord. I think that you've saved us from that wrath, Lord. And Jesus, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Father, I pray that you'll just touch their hearts with your grace and your mercy, Lord. I thank you and praise you for who you are, Lord. I pray that we would keep you central and above all and before all. Just thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.